in the heat of summer, it's easy to uh, slow down and kind of lose momentum. It's something that all pastors really have to contend with. I think that's why a lot of churches do vacation Bible school or special programming. You just have to mix it up to keep things interesting. Um, the problem with that is things are always interesting when you're following Jesus. There really isn't any need to spice things up. Um, life mixes things up on its own. We really don't have to facilitate that. If we need changes in the regular rhythm of how we do church, then the liturgical year informs that. The liturgical season that we are in right now is ordinary time, which is a time where we get to do whatever we want, really. And we have covered Jude in four weeks. Now it's time to go to 1 Corinthians. It's a text that has a lot to do with our culture here in America today. Of course, the ancient world was very different in many ways from our current world, but the human creature is the same as he has ever been. Sin is the same as it has always been. Satan's the same as he's always been. God is the same as he's always been. There are a lot of constants, even though technology and culture innovation might change. It's these constants that make the church relevant today. It's not that we continually um, adopt whatever culture that we're in. It's that we continually lift up Christ and him crucified. So uh, 1 Corinthians is really needed in this hour. It's something that, you know, every part of the Bible should be known by every Christian. But if we're going to rely on any particular books with how we minister to the culture around us, 1 Corinthians is absolutely essential. Everybody needs to know what's in there. So if you've already read it and you know what's in there, then I hope you find my preaching on it to be faithful over the coming 16 weeks. If you haven't read it before, I really hope that you'll commit to sticking it out with me and my uh, church. And when I say my church, I don't mean it belongs to me. I mean like I'm I'm connected to it. I, I feel a sense of belonging to it. So as, as this church goes through 1 Corinthians, I hope you'll go through it with us. If, if you're not committed to a church body, I hope you'll explore being committed to this church body and that um, if you're looking for a pastor to help uh, show you what the Word of God is about and what Christian living is about, I, I hope you will consider me. Everybody needs a pastor. Everybody needs a church. And so I pray that, that this is something that opens a door to you that makes sense out of the, the Christian tradition for you and um, is an invitation to you to, to faithful discipleship if you're not already on that road. If you are already on that road, then I hope you enjoy walking with me for a bit. And if you're nowhere close to me in person, then I pray you are committed to a church fellowship where you are, building them up and uh, experiencing the form and power of righteousness in your own life. So I'm going to stop talking for now so that you can listen to me talking this last Sunday. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. I should have the page number for 1 Corinthians 1 in there for you. I'm sorry I don't. Um, we're actually not going to go there first. 
Um, as I said at the beginning today, um, I actually did some homework to study what I'm talking about today. I usually don't do that because the plain meaning of the scriptures is more important than any minutiae I'm going to get into with the Greek translation or the Hebrew translation. I find that most people lack a basic understanding of the scriptures, so getting fancy with it just seems unnecessary. I'd rather spend my time during the week ministering to y'all personally or, or doing any number of things than preparing things that are not helpful whenever I get up here. And it's not the Jeffrey Rickman is so smart show up here. This is uh, Jesus Christ is so great. And it ain't a show. It's not entertainment. It's for our edification. So that's what we're all here to, uh, to do this morning is to learn about our Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation we share in him, how it is we should be the church together. Um, and so hopefully knowing a little bit more about the church in Corinth will help us to receive it better. Let me give you some basic facts about Corinth. Corinth was a city in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire covered all of the coastline around the Mediterranean Sea. It grew from what is now modern-day Italy to that whole area. Two centuries before Jesus, the area of Greece was not run by the Romans. Corinth had existed for a couple thousand years before Jesus. It was a place of commerce. Y'all know what an isthmus is? It's a long, uh, thin piece of land, okay? And it went out from the Greek mainland to another big piece of land. There was the Mediterranean Sea on the south and a bay on the north, and there was trade on both sides in the maritime region, and they wanted to trade with each other, and they could either go around a big mass of land or they could go across just a couple miles of land. And Corinth was right in the middle of that land. There was a little tributary city to the north, a little tributary city to the south, and there was constant foot traffic in between these two ports. Lots of wealth, lots of culture, lots of activity. The Corinthians imagine themselves to be quite hip, quite cosmopolitan. The problem was whenever the Romans came knocking, they didn't want to give in to the Romans. They fought and they lost. The Romans wiped them out. This is year 144, 146 before Christ. And so for 100 years, it was just laid waste. Nobody lived there. And then Julius Caesar in the year 46 BC, before Jesus was born, said, I want a new capital city of Achaia. Achaia, I think that's what it's called. Anyway, he said, let's rebuild Corinth. And that's what they did. And by the time uh, Paul went there, almost 100 years later, it was a city of 100,000 people, which in the ancient world is huge. It's humongous. And so it was, uh, it was a maritime city, as I talked about. Do you all know the, the, the stereotype that exists about ports and the kind of people, sailors, that go to ports? We've heard, we still have a saying, he curses like a sailor. The whole notion is that sailors are people who go from port to port and they are not particularly moral and upstanding people. That's something that's been common with almost all uh, people groups that are constantly on the move, whether you're talking about the Roma, uh, what do we call the Roma? Um, gypsies, thank you, golly. Yeah, so similar stereotypes exist. Sometimes they're overblown, sometimes they're true. Corinth, it was true. It was a very lascivious society, very licentious, very sinful. They were very uh, of the flesh, is how the Bible would say it. They had a culture that imagined themselves to be uh, just very uh, on top of it all, very superior. And that's the kind of culture that Paul went to in Acts chapter 18. So I was going to read Acts chapter 18 first before we got into 1 Corinthians so that you can kind of see how things went for him. He planted the church here. 
and then it kind of went wonky, and that's why he wrote the letter. But let's look at chapter 18. If, you, if you're in your Bibles, it's on page 1723 in your pew Bibles. I'll give you a second to get there. This is on Paul's second missionary journey. He's, he's got some victories under his belt. And he's also had a, a lot of losses under his belt. He went wherever the Lord sent him, did what he was called to do. Here's what he was called to do in Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that was the uh, emperor of the Roman Empire at the time, uh, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Remember, the synagogue is where the Jewish community would assemble on the Sabbath to read through God's word. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Saul, Paul, and became abusive, he took, shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7, Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed Crispus, the synagogue leader. Oh, interesting decision here. Okay, so uh, Crispus is not the synagogue leader. It's saying Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. Or maybe it is saying Crispus is the synagogue leader. You'll see why I care about that in a minute. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul, they believed and they were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack or harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. This is actually a pretty long stay for Paul. He was usually kind of a rolling stone, but he stayed for a year and a half to plant this church. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This is a, it's called a bema. It's a judgment seat in the middle of public. They brought him there to be corrected by the local Roman ruler. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, Settle that matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. So Paul stayed in Corinth for some time, and then he left his brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria. And that's where we're going to conclude there, because that's everything about Corinth. This uh, describes Paul's time there. Didn't go necessarily very well, but he was there for a year and a half planting what was a network of house churches. Remember, churches were the assemblies, not the buildings. They did sometimes have buildings. They were usually somebody's house that was a believer that they would open up to people. But it was a, a formal network of interconnected house churches that were all sharing the same 
good news of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to share the same authority structure, the same budget. Didn't always work out that way, and that's what 1 Corinthians is kind of about. Did anyone pay attention to the name of the synagogue leader at the tail end of what we were reading here? Sosthenes. All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians now. It's on page 1769. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, he's saying who it's from. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. I think it's the same guy. He was the leader of the synagogue. Why would they have just grabbed him and beat the crap out of him in front of the Bema? Well, it's because he was a follower with Paul. And did their beating work? Did he leave the faith of Christ Jesus? No. Even though he was publicly humiliated, here he is with Paul years later writing back to his home church because they've kind of gotten off base. All right. So before we get into the actual text, I, I like spoilers. I'm not one of these people that gets upset about spoilers. The spo I'm going to give you a spoiler here. All of 1 Corinthians is about a church community that has received God's word, been baptized into the faith, received true, lasting faith, and yet they're trying to fit in with the world around them. Remember, we talked about the kind of place Corinth was. It was cosmopolitan, rich, concerned with status, concerned with worldly pleasure. They were of the flesh. That's the kind of people that are now in the church. We're going to talk about what kind of people they were when they came in and what kind of people they turned into. What's at, at, one of the things that's at question here is, is it possible for someone who knows the truth of Christ Jesus to skew off course? I already believe yes. You're going to have to answer, ask and answer that question for yourself. I also believe that people, once they're off course, can be corrected. And I think that's why Paul wrote this letter. These people are way off. They're allowing all kinds of stuff in the church that they should not. Paul is writing saying, hey, you've forgotten some important things. I'm going to remind you, and I believe that you can correct course. So this is one of the things that's lost on our culture. Our culture is a very sensitive culture. Once you correct us, we're just thinking, oh, you, you hope I die and go to hell or something. No, if I wanted that, I would just leave you alone. You can do that just fine. If I'm going to correct you, clearly, as Paul does, it's because I love you and I want you to correct course so that you don't experience separation from God. That's what this is. Paul saying, hey, you guys aren't doing well. I'm going to correct you. And you'll notice on the front end, he's saying nice words and he makes it sound like it's about them, but it's actually about God to them. So let's listen to this. Verse 2. To the church of God... In Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, you know one of the main themes is they are feeling special. Like they know something that other people don't. They're wanting to separate from other believers like they're better than them. He's saying, no, 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 no. We all have the same God. All believers everywhere, we have the exact same God. And from the very beginning, I'm going to remind you of that. You're not special. That's the undertone here. Verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. So I'm thanking him for you actually because of something God did. He gave you his grace in Christ Jesus. 
For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God, thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. So, as we'll see in the later chapters, they're real full of themselves because they're speaking in tongues. They're getting a special word from God. They're seeing healings. He's saying, all that's from God. I'm going to glorify God. I'm not impressed with you, really. I'm impressed with what God is doing in you. And this is, this is a very important thing. Who here has blessings in your life? Who here has wealth? Who here has friends? Who here has a wonderful family? Who here has health? Who here has esteem? Those things are not things that you actually earned or deserved. They're things that God has given you out of his grace. And so rather than saying, oh, I'm so great, I've, I've done all this, saying, God, you're so great, you gave me all this. That's the corrective that he's offering from the get-go. Verse 4, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. What's he talking about there? Talking about the day of the Lord. We have a whole final book in the Bible called Revelation. Revealed, Revelation. The day of our Lord being revealed, Christ Jesus. Says, y'all are waiting for him. He is being gracious to you in the meantime. Verse 8, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So right up front, he's also very clear on the call. He said, I was called to be an apostle. He said that verse 1, didn't he? I was, God called me to be an apostle. An apostle is, uh, is in the line of prophets calling out, preparing people for the day of the Lord. He is, he is getting people for the last day ready. But he's saying, you guys are called to be holy. He said that in verse 2 or 3. Now he says, God has called you into fellowship with his son. And so because God has called you, he says... He will keep you firm to the end. Now, they're not firm right now. So he is reminding them of what's important so that they will remain firm till the end. But he's saying, because God is faithful, he's going to see you through. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In some of his letters, he gives his own opinions. He says, I, Paul, say this, not God. Whenever he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm appealing to you, he is speaking in God's seat. He's saying, this is what God wants from you. That all of you agree with one another in what you say. In the Greek, it literally says that you all say the same thing. This is what God wants. Agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Was Paul a moron? I got a couple no's. I got some people going, mm. Paul was about the most intelligent man of his age. Was Paul unfaithful? No, unfaithful people don't write parts of the Bible. He is very intelligent. He's very faithful. He's saying God wants us to be united perfectly in thought and mind. So if he's saying that, is, is that something that's a real possibility? It doesn't feel real. Feels like a fairy tale, doesn't it? There are times when Sarah Beth and I are talking and we are on the same wavelength and oh man, are we grooving along and we're having a great time. We totally understand one another. And that's something that's available, not just with the spouse. Anybody have a best friend? 
and where you're just talking with your best friend and you are totally in the same place and there are no secrets between you and everything is just perfectly in sync. So if it can happen with you and one other person, it can happen with you and two other people, the notion here is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it can happen with a whole group of people. And indeed, that's not some extreme luxury. That should be the norm in the church that we're expecting and hoping for. We've set the bar a bit low, haven't we, today? Nobody expects this. Paul is saying, in the name of God, I ask you to consider God is calling you here. He's calling you to be a want, say the same thing, think the same thing. Now, he's not saying have the same taste in fashion and, I don't know, interior design. That doesn't matter. What does matter is the gospel, the faith of Jesus Christ and how we live it out together. There should be no factions, no dissension, no division. Verse 11, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So Chloe is some local lady who runs her own household. She has people that have talked to Paul and said, hey, people are fighting in Corinth. Oh, the churches are not getting along. The church people are not getting along with each other. Verse 12, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. You see that little B there. It tells you that was a name that they had for Peter, the head of the apostles. Still another says, I follow Christ. Yesterday, I put out a video on my uh, podcast where I talked about um, complicated stuff in the Methodist tradition. It does, it's neither here nor there. But every time I talk about something complicated, there's a natural response. Some people write and they say, what about us who just want to follow Jesus? What about us who just, we don't have room for all this stuff. I don't want to care about all this. I just want to follow Jesus. There's a song, give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus, you know, as though that means the same thing to everybody. If you talk to other believers, you'll realize somebody might say, just give me Jesus. But then we are talking about very different Jesuses sometimes. In order to know Jesus, you have to have good doctrine. You have to have the energy for getting to know him. That's why we're getting together every Sunday and reading the scriptures and listening to a very imperfect pastor try and talk about perfect things. It's because we have to know who Jesus is to worship him. So there are people that get fed up and say, I, 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 I don't care about all that doctrine stuff, just give me Jesus. That's not really an option. 2,000 years of Christian history has shown people who all love Jesus can see things very differently. We have no option but to seek union of mind. And that's very difficult, is it not? Once again, the metaphor of a marriage, if you've been married, you know how hard it is to be of one mind with your spouse. It's even harder to be of one mind with the congregation. In fact, it's a supernatural affair you cannot do without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Should we be praying for the Holy Spirit? Without a doubt. Absolutely. The other part here is they're breaking off. They're saying, well, uh, you know, I follow Kephas. Oh, I, you know, Kephas doctrine, a little wrong. You know, I follow Paul. He has a pure doctrine. You know, they're dividing from each other, and he's going, y'all are ridiculous. That, that is what he's saying. He's saying, verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptize any of you, except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Well, yes, I, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I love this part. It's so informal. It's just kind of a hick for a second. 
But he's saying, I think God, I didn't baptize y'all so that you can't say you're baptized in my name. You're not dragging my name into this. But how often are, are Christians like this? Well, I follow John Wesley, so I don't know about those Baptists. Well, I follow John Calvin, so I don't know about those Pelagians in the Methodist church. Well, I follow uh, Pope Francis, so I don't know about all those ungodly Protestants. You know, this is, this is what Christians do to each other nowadays. We've just given up entirely on Christian unity, and we just say, I, I follow that guy. We got that guy on the stained glass back there. He's my guy, John Wesley. I love John Wesley. I love the Methodist tradition. But if it ever divides me from another brother or sister in Christ, then I am convicted by Paul's words here. We follow one man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, nobody else. Now, we have a great heritage to draw upon, and I'm not saying that we don't draw upon our heritage. I'm saying that that heritage should never divide us from a true brother or true sister. The hard thing comes in that how do we discern a true brother and a true sister? And that's where we have 2,000 years of, of a lot of, I can't give that sermon today. That's too complicated. I can mostly just dress down the ridiculous part that Paul is obviously correcting here. We have proto-denominationalism here. And then the question is, what do we do today? If, if, if Jesus does not like us being separated, if someone like Paul just sees how ridiculous it is, what do we do? Do we just start the true church here and ask everybody else to join? That doesn't really seem very realistic to me. Rather, it seems to me you just got to dip your toes in somewhere and do your best to achieve Christian unity from there. So, another spoiler alert, if you keep me here as your pastor, I'm going to try and combine with other churches and traditions. Because I think that's what the faith calls us to do. I don't think there's a Methodist section in heaven and a Baptist and a Presbyterian and Episcopalian section in heaven. I just believe there's heaven and there's all of us together who are in Christ. And if you're more interested in what divides you than what unites you, well, then I'm not sure you're in Christ. I say mean things sometimes. Y'all forgive me. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I did an interview with the Baptist preacher in Lenapah a few months ago. He told me a story of a, a famous Korean uh, evangelist who came to America and was traveling, uh, touring these churches that hosted him. And at the end of the tour, they took him back to the airport and they said, what did you think of all the different ministries and churches and stuff we showed you? And he says, I think it's amazing what you guys have been able to accomplish without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a great backhanded burn? But so often, this is how churches do business. They say, oh, we've got to use the lingo of the people around us. We need to use all the technology. We need to speak the language they're speaking. We need to do it better than the competition. If you're winning, with peop if you're winning people with anything other than a humble appeal in Christ, you're not saving them. It doesn't matter if you get their butt in the pew. It doesn't matter if you get them giving money to the church. If you're winning them with anything other than Christ, you're not winning them. You're not helping them. And that's what he's saying here is, I'm not making fancy appeals with well-spoken wisdom. Paul's made clear he can do that. He says, I'm not doing it with wisdom and eloquence because I don't want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. Are people being one with Christ's power or with our power? I can imagine a disingenuous person listening to me going, man, he is just so unself-aware. 
He's saying it's not, to be good, it's, good, it's not good to be a denomination while he's got Methodists on the building out there. He's saying it's not good to uh, uh, use the tools of the world well to make an appeal for Christ, and we're on the Internet. We have a great audiovisual ministry. This guy, he doesn't realize he's convicting himself. You know what? These are things that work on me sometimes. I'm not getting up here because I think I'm perfect. I'm getting up here because I'm just reading God's word and saying, hey, maybe this corrects me and us. I don't know what to propose. I'm just letting the word break me down. I'm trying to model what a faithful relationship with the scriptures looks like. And then I'm sharing it with you because I believe that the Holy Spirit can and does work through the body. It's not the, the church dance is not, oh, we have the perfect preacher up there and we all just need to conform to him. It's we have a perfect Savior in heaven and we need to conform to him and we don't know how to do that unless we talk together. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That, that's a, a nice way of saying going to hell. There are people who are alive right now that are going to hell. The, cross, the, the message of the cross sounds like foolishness to them. They are not at all impressed or moved by it. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's always hard for believers to understand how are other people so unmoved by Jesus? Well, we just need to throw some big event and show them how fun and cool Jesus is. Or we just need to make a movie and, and then they'll understand it. You know, we need to put it. No, 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 no. Some people just don't get it and it's because they're dead inside. And you can't make them alive. Only the Holy Spirit can make people alive. They're, they're, they are not your responsibility. Your responsibility is just warning people whether or not they receive it. That's in God's territory. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He's about to attack the, the church very much values sophistry, sounding smart, uh, participating in the public discourse, being great apologists, being so wise. He's saying God doesn't care about that. Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So there are wise people in the world, always have been. In every ethnic group, there are wise people, but their wisdom doesn't lead them to God. So God made his appeal through the foolish because the wise weren't going to get it. If, you put, if I, in my hick language, have to put it in my language, that's what I think he's saying there. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks they look for wisdom. So you got signs and wisdom, but we, we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's a foolishness to the Gentiles. He's making it very clear there are a lot of people who, if you tell them the good news, they are not impressed because they have other loyalties that they're, they're ascribing to. We're not called to be Jews. We're not called to be Gentiles. We're called to be those who've been washed in the blood of Christ Jesus, and nobody gets washed in the blood without knowing Christ and him crucified. That is the message that we have. A crucified Galilean who was the God-man, descended to the dead, rose on the third day, sits at the right hand of God, will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the message that saves. 
But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There is no power, there is no wisdom outside of Christ. There is no way to find Christ outside of Christ. There is no way to preach Christ at all times and when necessary use words. You ever heard that silly saying? It's attributed to Frank Sansis. If, if you kind of zoned out for a second, I'm going to say it again. Preach Christ at all times and when necessary use words. It's used by people who don't really want to preach Christ. They want to imagine they can do it by doing anything other than talking about Jesus. The only way to preach Christ is to say the name Jesus, is to tell the story of the Christ. That's the only way. If you do anything other than that, you have not extended salvation to somebody. I think we're in verse 25 now. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Anybody want to argue with that? You would be wrong. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's saying y'all were the foolish things. You weren't noble. You weren't wise. You weren't rich. He chose you. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That was you guys. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. What's happened here is the same thing that happens in every community. When the church gets together and they have a shared life together, they get rich. They do business with each other. They trust one another. They interact together. These people who were poor, dumb, and unrespected, they came together and they became a faction unto themselves in the Corinthian society. And all of a sudden, they're all raising in wealth and status. And rather than submitting all of that to God and remaining humble, they're getting full of themselves. Paul is saying, remember your roots. How many movies are made in America where somebody climbs a ladder and they're, they're rich and they don't want to go home to their working class people and they say, you need to remember your roots. That's kind of what's going on here is Paul is saying, you need to remember where you came from. You used to know that you were nothing. Now you're thinking you're something. You're not anything. God is everything. You remember that he's given you all that you have. Without him, you have nothing. You have no room to boast. Rather, when you understand God and who he is, you boast in him. It is because of him, verse 30, that you are in Christ Jesus. You didn't come here, if I had to put it in my own words, you didn't come because you're smart. You didn't come because you're intelligent or insightful or lucky. You came because he called you. That's the only reason you're here. You didn't do anything to deserve it. What do we call that doctrine? When God gives you good things you don't deserve? Grace. This is a fundamental doctrinal conviction. God gave you good things, not because you deserve it, but because God is good. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God. And that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. What is Christ Jesus? Christ Jesus is all those things for... People get irritated with Christians because we're talking about Jesus all the time. Well, when Jesus is wisdom, righteousness, holiness, when he is our redemption, then yeah, we don't get sick and tired of talking about Jesus. We don't feel the need to move on because it's perfect. He is perfect. Verse 31, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 